This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 21st of October 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through the global papers with Charles Hecker. Then... It's not just an exhibition about tea, it's not just an exhibition about the Horniman, it's an exhibition about people. We explore an exhibition at the Horniman Museum about the history and cultural significance of tea. First, though, here's the news. Hamas, which governs Gaza, released two American hostages on Friday. Judith Rannan, 59, and her daughter Natalie, 17, were kidnapped in its attack on southern Israel on October the 7th. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu vowed to fight until victory in Gaza, signalling no pause in his military's bombardment and expected invasion of the enclave. Hardline conservative Republican Jim Jordan's quest to become Speaker of the US House of Representatives ended on Friday as his fellow Republicans revoked their support following a third failed vote on the House floor. Democrats called Jordan a dangerous extremist and unanimously voted against him in all three floor votes. It's not clear who Republicans might turn to next. And Pakistan's three-time Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif is scheduled to arrive back home today after four years of self-imposed exile to kick-start his party's campaigns three months ahead of a general election. Sharif left for London in 2019 to receive medical treatment while serving a 14-year prison sentence for corruption. And though he can't run again for election or hold public office because of his convictions, his legal team say he plans to appeal and his party says he aims to become Prime Minister for a fourth time. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. Good morning to you, Charles Hecker. Good morning, Georgina Godwin. It's very nice to have you back in the studio. It's a pleasure. Uh, Charles, as you know, we always want this to be a happy Saturday show, but the news is so utterly, unrelentingly grim. It's incredible just the ferocity and the velocity, and yes, I chose those words specifically to go together, uh, of the news. And, And in the print world, in magazines, in newspapers, in online and in social media, um, the amount of news that's coming at us at fire hose pace is really just remarkable and it, and it just seems to keep increasing. Mm. A couple of new lines that have just come out. This is sort of breaking news. Israel's allowed uh, 20 trucks carrying food and water and medicine uh, into Gaza through through the southern crossing from Egypt. So that's the Rafa crossing, which has opened. There was live footage showing trucks entering the border. Uh, but I think it's unclear how long it's going to remain open. Uh, it's it's Israel's agreed for twenty trucks to go through, but we don't know. Um, uh, I mean, that that's hardly enough. Is is my point? <laughs> uh, that, that's right. For for um, a, a territory that has two point three million individuals living in one of the most densely populated um, parts of the world, um, twenty humanitarian relief trucks is is, is not going to go very far. Um, but I think what this 
does is it points to a series of events that will be kicked off by one of the first stories that we want to look at um, today. And, 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 and basically, um, some of the papers that we're going to look at stick very closely to the news overview that you gave at the very top of the broadcast. Um, and I was looking at the New York Times discussing the release of Judith Renan and her daughter, Natalie. Um, and Hamas said that it was releasing the hostages for humanitarian reasons. Um, but the Times tells us that that Hamas requested nothing in exchange for this release. Um, and I was thinking that that perhaps it was the release of these two hostages. There are another 10 Americans still being held and up to about 200 other hostages still being held in undisclosed areas in Gaza. But I'm thinking that this was an anticipated first move. Um, that was designed perhaps to kick off a chain reaction of processes. And one of the responses that was worth anticipating after this hostage release was the opening up of the Rafa passage, passage and, and the entrance of those humanitarian relief trucks. Absolutely. And the release of these two hostages, of course, is, is a tiny bit of good news in this story, which really only has bad news on both sides. And I have to say, as a journalist, I have never had so much interaction with my audience in my life. I have had more letters from people complaining, mostly, sometimes com commending, uh, about uh, how we're covering the story. But what's really interesting is that it's, it's equal amount of complaints from both sides. So people who support Palestine and people who support Israel are both writing to me going, you're not giving our side enough. So I, in, in my book, that's that's got to be a win. Um, but I mean, the, the point is that it, it's almost impossible to, to tread this fine line. All we're trying to do is, is convey the facts when we know them. And it's very, very difficult. So let's talk about really one of the most contentious things, which is the explosion in the hospital. Uh, and uh, of course, at first, the, the sort of timeline of this was that Hamas said, uh, this was Israel, definitely. They released their thing. Israel then said it absolutely wasn't us. Then we got Joe Biden going there. And then there became more evidence and a lot of people going, look, it does appear that it actually wasn't Israel. However, there's still some pushback from the other side. We simply do not know. And until there's an investigation, and none of us are explosive experts, uh, until there's a proper ex uh, uh, inquiry, we can't say. Well, imagine the pressure on the hundreds, maybe even thousands of journalists um, in the Middle East and beyond who are covering an incredibly fast-breaking situation and who are under a series of very important pressures. Um, first of all, the pressure to stay on top of events and to relay the news as it happens. Um, secondly, who are, I think we have to say, under a certain amount of competitive pressure um, and who are there to make sure that they're getting stories early, that they're getting them first. And then the third piece of pressure that they're under, and this is perhaps something that's come under enormous strain um, in connection with the hospital bombing, is to make sure that the information that, that they're presenting as quickly and as early as they can is accurate. Mm. Uh, and so the compromise between all of those different forces sometimes breaks down. The other thing I think, and when you talk about the both sides of this, is that there is a pressure when you have the government of Israel issuing statements, um, it is difficult to, you, you don't as a journalist want to be in the position to undercut an official statement from an internationally recognized government 
while at the same time understanding that misinformation is very much a part of this conflict and that information coming from interested parties um, itself may not be entirely accurate, may have political or military um, axes to grind. Um, but when a government tells you something, you pretty much got to get that out there because you want to get that on the record. Mm. And the same thing that you want to do is you want to see what Hamas has to say about the source of the attack and get that on the record. Um, and that's sort of the first cut. Um, the second cut then is saying, okay, this is what the parties to the war have told us. Um, how do we as journalists begin to unpack that and find out who's grinding what axe and who's got what story, what line to, to, to promote um, and how we try to filter that. Um, and you're absolutely right that when photographic analysis began to emerge um, and when we started to hear some indication of what, what people with the you know, satellite tracking capabilities were seeing, we understood that the picture might have been slightly more nuanced. Mm -hmm. um, none of that information itself has been confirmed yet. Uh, and, and that's the third cut in all of this will be the investigations that are taking place into the into the attack, into the number of casualties, into the extent of the damage and into the perpetrators. Absolutely. Um, I can tell you that uh, huge, huge marches in Australia today, in Sydney, massive march. Uh, the head of the, the, the big Jewish organization there says that this is really undermining kind of uh, unity and, and that it's a it's it's been apparently there were there was a lot of anti-Semitism around the edges of that but again um, we don't have the direct line on it but it looks like it was a messy situation. Uh, I can tell you that here in London um, from the 27th of October so this is next weekend mm. uh, at the Royal Geographical Society it's the Pell Lit Fest uh, and the, the theme is Nakba, a century of resistance and solidarity so there'll be a lot of Palestinian writers coming to that event and obviously it's especially poignant now because uh, what I'm hoping, though, is, of course, that it does open up debate, that there'll be a lot of thinkers there and people can really have, one hopes, a, a balanced uh, discussion. Yeah, precisely. I mean, if that if that event is happening, you know, in, in the immediate near future, um, perhaps um, it'll there will enough time will have elapsed for there to be a moment of reflection surrounding um, what some of those writers and what some of the the, the, the people at that at that meeting want to say. Mm. The, the problem with the hospital event and with reporting is that once you release certain statements into the open, they're picked up by individuals who have partisan positions on events. And so saying that Israel bombed the hospital um, is picked up and, and, and run with. And, and those are, you know, that's toothpaste that you can't put back into the tube. Um, and then when Israel says, no, 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 it wasn't us, it was somebody else, um, there'll always be another side of the argument that will pick that up and run with it. And, and, and unfortunately, news coverage and news interpretation by the consumers of news now is obsessed with hot takes that don't cool off as rapidly as they used to. Mm. Um, and, and that has served to exacerbate the situation. Well, the problem is it's very difficult to turn to somebody and say, hang on a second, we don't know, let's wait. Um, you know, that's, that's something that in the current news environment, in the current news 
ecosystem, which includes the media and the consumers of the media, um, that's an extremely different, difficult proposition to get across. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, and of course, there are a few people who are trying to make domestic capital out of this. So we've seen uh, the leader of South Korea heading off uh, to the Middle East today. And of course, Rishi Sunak, uh, the prime minister here in the UK, uh, chose yesterday to go there. Uh, I think there was a reason for that. I mean, obviously, he's after world peace, but he's also after escaping some terrible by-election results. That's right. It is a a sort of long-standing practice in politics that when things are looking bad domestically, you turn to foreign affairs and try to appear statesmanlike um, as as the leader of a party and the leader of a country. And, And that's part of what Rishi Sunak was doing on his diplomatic mission to Israel and beyond throughout the Middle East, although it was impossible Um, in the local media to avoid the fact that in by-elections, the conservatives took an absolute pasting. Um, And so we go to the Times um, with a headline that says, Tories plot stamp duty cut to win over voters. Um, and, and, and this is a story of, of the sort of the red meat that the conservative party wants to throw at voters to somehow distract them from the fact that they have been absolutely wiped out in by-elections in mid-Bedfordshire to replace MP Nadine Doris, who her own voters wanted to throw out um, by the time you know she was called for a by-election. And then, of course, in Tamworth, you had Chris Pincher, who was accused of sexual harassment. Um, Both of those saw overwhelming Tory majority positions overturned. Um, The problem that the Times frames for us in its coverage is that wanting to cut stamp tax is something that is very clearly aimed at a sort of middle class, upper middle class constituency and also a middle age constituency. And the Times tells us that the Tories in that bracket um, is really in trouble and that really you have to be much wealthier and much older to continue to vote Tory these days and that that, that middle age and younger voters are leaving the Conservative Party in droves and it's making this look like a fairly desperate move. Yeah. I want to just uh, recommend a book here, if I may, because... It's absolutely fascinating. I'm I'm in the middle of reading it for the second time, actually. Uh, It's called How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. Oh, yes. And it's by Ian Dunt. And he talks about tax and treasury and and he talks about how the tax laws are just not joined up. And so, I mean, it's just crazy the way the system works. But he really goes into how and how the treasury works and and how the the inside of Westminster. And in fact, there is an interview with him about it on Meet the Writers, which people can listen to. But if you are out and about, about this weekend. I'll actually be doing a live event with him uh, in Margate at Margate Bookie, which is this wonderful book festival uh, by the seaside. So we'll be chatting to each other about that tomorrow uh, there. But it's it's a really deep dive into how things like these tax cuts come about and, and what they mean and why ministers do this. Um, that's right. First of all, I just want to say that Ian Dunt is a fantastic voice in modern British politics, and I'm addicted to him on social media. He's great, and, and, isn't he? Yeah, and so um, I'll be interested to hear what you what what your your interview with him reveals. Um, and he's right. And the Times points out that really stamp duty doesn't kick in until you're buying properties that are worth more than two hundred fifty thousand pounds, which, frankly, these days actually describes the average price <laughs> of a dwelling in the United Kingdom. But still, it, you know, we're talking about 
about sums of property that start at 250,000 pounds and move up to 925,000 pounds for the next level of, of stamp duty to kick in. And, you know, catering to those voters doesn't really carry the message that the conservatives want to sort of win over working class or middle class or younger uh, voters. And, and and so, you know, it's just and, and moreover, the Times is saying that this is going to be an incredibly expensive bit of tax relief for the budget. Yeah. Uh, so not not a great opening move in response to the by-elections. So what do British people do when they have a disappointment or a setback? Let's put on the kettle, Georgina. <laughs> That's right. A nice cup of tea. So, a Victorian dem in southeast London's Forest Hill, the Horniman Museum, has just opened its latest exhibition, which shines a light on tea, a £2 billion industry in the UK. Monocle's Isabella Jewell braved the rain to meet the curator behind the exhibition. So there's always that conversation about how popular it is. It's drunk by billions of people every single day. And in terms of UK, it's our national drink, but it's also the national drink of many different countries around the world. It doesn't take too much imagination to guess the UK's favourite drink. Throw a papery bag into a mug, pour over some hot water, and after a couple of minutes, a dash of milk and voila, a steaming cup of tea. While it may seem a mundane aspect of our everyday, the humble tea is at the centre of a new exhibition at London's Horniman Museum, curated by Navjot Mangat. A lot of people don't know where their tea sometimes comes from. I mean, they do know, but sometimes we're not fully aware of the history of something that's an important part of our everyday. And that's exactly what the Horniman are hoping to unpack with their exhibition Chai Cha Tea, the drink's history, which is intrinsically linked to colonialism. For the Horniman Museum, tea and its links to empire are part of the fabric of the place. The Horniman was founded by Frederick Horniman and he was a tea merchant and Horniman's Pure Tea at one point was the most popular tea company in the world as tea traders. From the wealth gained from that tea company is how the Horniman Museum was founded essentially. Over the last few years, museums have faced increasing pressure to re-evaluate their history and the objects they house and the Horniman is no exception. First opening in 1890, the Horniman Museum has roots in the British Empire and colonialism, much like many of the UK's older cultural institutions. So after 2020 and the murder of George Floyd and the breakout of the coronavirus and the pandemic, I think there was a big conversation about what the Horniman should be to its local communities, but also to the world around it. And there was a big conversation about social responsibility, but also looking inwards to ourselves and about our imperial history. Tea plays an important role in that, I think as you go into the exhibition, you begin to explore actually just how colonialism is rooted within the story of tea, to do with its trade, to do with how it's sourced, but also to do with how far Britain and British traders went to source tea. Navjo and the Horniman team worked with local groups representing the East, Southeast Asian and South Asian communities to put the show together. It's not just an exhibition about tea, it's not just an exhibition about the Horniman, it's an exhibition about people. And we're very conscious of sometimes in museums who we don't include in the conversation, who we marginalise. And with the story of tea, the story of Asian peoples as a community or a community that has strong roots in tea is often untold or often explored only throughout the ideas of tea ceremonies or something that's orientalised or something that is given, you know, this mystic sense of spirituality and the first thing everyone kind of said was we don't want to begin this story the traditional way of beginning the story which is usually either uh, Portuguese tea trading routes 
or tea in Britain. So we actually begin the exhibition with tea in China and explore its cultural roots, but also root it within spirituality, within our daily routines, but also what it means to us as well in terms of family, but also in terms of our personal relationships. So as you enter the exhibition space, you're transported back 4,000 years to ancient China. Everyone's probably has thought about once, actually, how did someone know to drink tea? Who said, eat that thing? Who said, give it a shot? And Shenang, the demigod, was the person that said, I will eat that thing, basically. And it was his role as, you know, the god of agriculture, as this divine being, to try all the plants across what is today mainland China for consumption. And the story of him discovering tea is, you know, one day he's resting, he's boiling water to make sure it's consumable, and a tea leaf kind of falls into it. And he drinks it and he feels invigorated, essentially. And that is the discovery of tea. And that kind of legend goes back, like I said, 2737 BCE. So a history that's 4,000 years old is incredibly surprising. Navjot showed me some of the objects on display. We call this case a racist narrative, and it's an exploration of how something as everyday as tea plays a role in how racism is permeated, essentially during the late and mid-19th century these depictions of Chinese people as opium smokers that flood basically Britain, whether it's through literature and text, there's a wood carving there depicting two opium smokers and I think one of the most harrowing objects that we have in this exhibition is a, a toy for children and that's a cutout of an opium smoker that they expected young people to or kids to stuff and kind of carry around with them but for us it's really a conversation not only about the history of it but how these kind of negative racist stereotypes impact East Asian and Southeast Asian communities today. While the museum does place emphasis on the unsavoury history of tea, the Horniman is also looking to the present and seeing what tea means today in diverse communities like Forest Hill. And the section that we're standing in now, right after that, is called Belonging. And here is where we've worked with our partners such as the British Asian Collective, Bolobrook Youth Centre and Kapo Bobo, a local Hern Hill, South London community. Well, it's a hub, but it's also a bubble tea shop. And they all basically have a dialogue about what tea means to them today. So they wanted to have these kind of open objects for people to kind of engage with, whether it be bubble tea, whether it be Moroccan mint tea, whether it be about dim sum and pu'er, or whether it be about chai. Even if you may not like tea. So I think after those conversations about conflict and colonialism and marketing and trade, there is this celebration and this joy that comes of actually it is my own. We can still take ownership of it. It is something that we enjoy and there's nothing wrong with that as well. For Monocle at the Horniman Museum, I'm Isabella Jewell. Thank you to Isabella. Now we have some interesting teas in front of us. So one is butter toffee popcorn. OK, that's what I'm pouring now. And the other is Pan Galactic Gargle Blaster. Now, apparently, the second one, which I'm just going to pour now, uh, contains Sri Lankan black tea, black currant, and it's spa... Oh, damn, I'm spilling it. (laughs) (laughs) And it sparkles. So I'm actually using... Oh, it's a weird colour. That's the most unusual colour. Oh, and it does sparkle. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Charles, you've got to try that one. Um, We're actually using these gorgeous little teapots that uh, the Monocle Cafe have lent us. And if you just this gives you a taste for tea, do pop down to our cafe. Open today. It's serving lots of great teas. Um, I'm going to try this one now. What, what do you make of the taste? So the butter toffee popcorn meets you right on the nose as you go in. And it genuinely smells like rich, candied popcorn. And the taste 
does not disappoint. It's actually really nice. It is tea. It is unquestionably tea, but it has this wonderful flavor of toffee and popcorn without being sort of cloyingly sweet. It's also a lovely sort of dark amber color in the teacup. I'm, I'm mesmerized by the pan-galactic gargle blaster because it literally <laughs> looks like it's got sort of pixie dust in it, and, and it's sparkling up at you from the bottom of the cup, and it's this very, very dark olive green color. Wow. <laughs> it's quite weird, huh? Um, I've never tasted anything quite like that. Yeah. Um, it's kind of mild. It's kind of floral. It's a little bit sweet. Um, and I'm a little bit nervous about drinking the sparklies. <laughs> Me too. But listen, you are going to need something so much stronger than tea to get through what your government is doing. Oh, Georgina, you know, if only I could change my accent every once in a while just to kind of avoid, you know, what's coming out of Washington, D.C. I mean, this is absolutely part of this incredible velocity of news spinning around the world. And, and so um, I was looking this morning at a piece in The Washington Post that says threats couldn't save Jim Jordan, but Trump era intimidation has had an impact. And this is referring to what happened late yesterday in Washington, D.C., and that is Jim Jordan, who's a congressman from Ohio, lost on his third attempt to become Speaker of the House, trying to replace Kevin McCarthy, who was ousted two weeks ago um, in, a, in a sort of internal Republican coup in the House of Representatives. Um, and Jim Jordan thought that he would be elected Speaker of the House because he was trying to basically scare everybody into voting for him. And the Post has a really interesting piece of analysis that says maybe, just maybe, that the fact that he lost three times running, remember McCarthy went through 15 rounds mm -hmm. before being elected, that perhaps this is a rejection of the hard right Republican tactics um, at play in Congress, and that maybe, just maybe, we're facing a small turning point. But we're still seeing that in swing states, Trump is polling so much better than Biden. Well, that's right. So the American election come November of next year will really boil down to this small group of swing states that you've just named. Uh, and, and that's where it's quite close. I mean, there's a certain amount of states that we know will vote for Trump. There's a certain amount of states that we know will vote for Biden. In between those two patches, it's all up to be had. Um, Trump is in a tiny bit of trouble coming up. Um, and that is that another thing that's across most of the papers today is the fact that a third defendant in the Georgia vote rigging trial has pled guilty um, and has turned essentially state's evidence. Um, this will play out over the primary season. Uh, and all of these people is, you know, will make it look very, very bad for Trump indeed. It's not sure whether he specifically will go to trial before, during, or after the elections. But there are plenty of, pe plenty of people who are willing to give evidence against him now. Mm. And that may play on how things turn out in these swing states. Absolutely. Charles, with the winter drawing in here, in, in, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, and the state of the world, one feels one just sort of wants to put the duvet over the, your head and hibernate. That's right. And, and among those people who are people, among those creatures, you might say, uh, who are, are getting ready to hibernate for the winter season and perhaps take a break from all the bad news around the world, are the bears of Tohoku Prefecture 
in Japan. And so we're looking at the Japan Times that tells us today, bear attacks on the rise in Akita and Iwate due to lack of food. So it's time for bears to go to sleep for the winter, and they like to eat lots and lots and lots of acorns before they hibernate. And Japan, as a result of climate changes and various other processes underway, is not producing as many acorns as it normally does. Bears are beginning to attack people. Um, a number of people have been very, very seriously injured. Um, a 75-year-old woman um, from Iwate Prefecture died after being attacked by a bear. Um, and while this is all very tragic, and this points to a lot of unfortunate trends at work, um, I have to say that one of the lighter sides of this story, if at all possible, is the advice that the Japan Times gives us in the event that we are in the wilds of Tohoku Prefecture in Japan and we come across a bear. Uh, and what, we, what it tells us is that if you encounter a bear up close, you definitely should not try to run away because it's likely to give chase. Instead, it is advised that you slowly back off with your eyes on the bear while speaking quietly. What the Japan Times does not tell us is what we should be saying to the bear. <laughs> it's only saying that we should be speaking quietly. Uh, which I think is very, very good advice. <laughs> now, some people who are not going quietly into that good night, of course, are the Rolling Stones. Uh, they have just released their first new material in almost 20 years. It's the album Hackney Diamonds. Do you know what a Hackney Diamond is? I am a 20-year resident of Hackney, and I do not know what a Hackney Diamond is. Broken glass. <sighs> Apparently, ah, uh, just as you see in the streets on a on a exactly, Saturday morning. Those are Hackney diamonds. Uh, mixed reviews. I think it's fair to say a lot of people really, really like it. Uh, this is the Washington Post. It says fresh. It's a fresh is the word to describe the album. But some others are not thinking it's so brilliant. But by and large, it's five star reviews. Actually, I'm looking at the Times here that says it is thrilling and even moving. Uh, and they give you a track-by-track track breakdown of every single song on the album. And, and they are absolutely enraptured um, at the quality of this most latest production. Well, you know what? I think that as we sip our pan-galactic gargle blaster... <laughs> Is that the name of a Rolling Stone song? <laughs> it should be, shouldn't it? <laughs> uh, it's the name of the tea we were drinking. Um, we should probably go off now uh, very quietly, backing away possibly, to listen to some Rolling Stones. <laughs> Charles Hecker, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure. That's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our producer and studio engineer, Mariella Bevan. Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. I am Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>